you have attuned to Cultural Corner. I'm Dr. Kerry, and a big warm welcome uh, to all to this week's episode. Now, I'd like to think that everything that we discuss here in Cultural Corner is relevant to the contemporary world uh, that we're living in, but maybe some things more than others. So today we're going to uh, be talking a little bit about the topic of politics and power, which I think may be among the most urgent to address, uh, really because of the pervasiveness of violent conflicts that I think really have come to characterize the recent modern era uh, all over the world. And in anthropology, we strive to understand these things like violent conflicts, for example, through today's analytic of politics and power. Now, politics and power have been a focal study in the discipline of anthropology since the 1940s. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that anthropology started cranking out work on the topic during the Second World War. So Margaret Mead's noted essay uh, titled, Warfare is Only an Invention, Not a Biological Necessity, was directly influenced by the muscle of power and wartime politics. It was published in August of 1940, uh, just about a year into World War II. And Mead, I think, was such a visionary for her day. Uh, she was also a gifted writer. And these two things, I think, worked together to not only make her a household name, but also the discipline of anthropology a household name, too. But central to Mead's argument in that essay, first, is evidence that warfare does exist in many human groups. Uh, from even state-level societies to so-called primitive societies. But her data demonstrate uh, that war is not something that's simply emblematic of a society reaching a certain stage of development. And it's not something that's hardwired into human biology either. I wish to urge another point of view, Mead writes, quote, that warfare is this sort of invention like any other invention, end quote. Really, I think what Mead is saying is that people who are warlike only go to war if they have that invention. Mead goes on to further expound on what she means, and I'll quote her here. She says, warfare is just an invention known to the majority of human societies by which they permit their young men either to accumulate prestige or avenge their honor, or acquire wives, or slaves, or sago lands, or cattle, or appease the bloodlust of their gods, or the restless souls of the recently dead." End quote. Now, as you'll see when you read her essay, uh, parts of her work is so hopeful because she believes that violent conflicts can instead be mitigated through nonviolent means. So Mead walks her readers through these little ethnographic vignettes that tell of non-state communities around the world, uh, like the Eskimo, the Lepchis, the Balinese, who do not use warfare to settle disputes. So rather, they have other mechanisms to do so. And I was particularly struck by how the Balinese settle disputes. Uh, they register their disagreement 
in a temple uh, before the gods, and they might maybe make some offerings and perhaps go as far as vowing to never speak with each other again. That's how disputes are settled in Bali. In her essay, though, Mead comes down really hard on warfare, uh, in fact, likening it to a disease. But I think really her message is one of aspiration. Really, that humankind needs to, quote, render warfare as out of date as the tractor is making the plow or the motor car, the horse and buggy, end quote. Now, I almost imagine Mead thinking about an anthropological framework of understanding as a kind of utopian remedy for the dystopian world she lived through during the Second World War, which I think really is kind of tragically poetic. But I love what she's getting at, right? She's calling on the Western world to look to these so-called primitive or traditional societies as these kinds of really models for peaceful resolution. Now, anthropologists are also interested in the study of power. When anthropologists talk about power, they're referring to the ability or potential to bring about change through action or influence. Eric Wolf, uh, an anthropologist who we talked about in uh, an earlier episode, did quite a bit of research on power during his career. And he's argued that virtually all human relationships, whether these be friendships, uh, uh, work relationships, our relationships with teachers, or even romantic encounters, all human relationships are marked by power. Anthropology also helps us see how power is built into a society's social structure and embedded in the very ideas that societies construct about things like race, gender, kinship, religion, class, ethnicity, sexuality, and even the global economy. Globalization, as I think you can imagine, has had really a great deal of influence on shifting and redefining the dynamics of power around the globe. Another classic study in cultural anthropology is the research by Elman Service. Uh, Service is known for his classification of political systems into four basic types, which you'll read about, uh, these being bands, tribes, chiefdoms, and states, uh, each having their own sort of defining set of criteria so that anthropologists of Service's day could place groups into a typology. Now, for any aspiring teachers out there who might be listening, definitely look at Service's work. Uh, because I do know from personal experience that his classification actually appears on the social, excuse me, social studies praxis test. Now, Service's research guided anthropology really for a generation uh, when it when it was published in the mid twentieth century. But anthropologists of today, I think, really see a little bit of simplicity in Service's typology, because more and more ethnographic research has suggested that virtually no groups are isolated entities that fit as neatly into this typology as I think service believed in his time. And maybe perhaps even more salient is how colonialism, enslavement, uh, military occupations, missionaries, and even the global economy 
have left virtually no groups political organization unaffected. Which brings me to another point, uh, maybe just a little tangential, uh, tangential, but I think important. Services work, as we said, is really a bit antiquated. And dare I say, uh, almost not really emblematic of how the world uh, operates in uh, the modern era. So it begs the question, why is it still on a praxis test? The test that the state, and we'll get to the state in a second, but the test that the state gives teachers to determine if they are, quote, like, fit enough to be a teacher. I've always been so curious about the invisibility and silencing of anthropological perspectives in the school system. And I've been thinking about what anthropology's place is in sort of uh, pre-K to grade 12 curricula. And it's an area I'm beginning to look at in my own research. Uh, curiously enough, I was actually offered a teaching job at a preschool because I sold them on anthropology's potential in a pre-K setting, which sort of got uh, these creative gears uh, right in my mind turning on this project. But anthropologists, and really we'll say, I guess, political anthropologists have turned their gaze to the role of the state and their influence on groups. By states, we're talking about autonomous regional, uh, an autonomous regional structure of political, economic, and military rule with a central government that's authorized to do things like make laws uh, and even use force to maintain order and defend territory. Max Weber, a noted early 20th century German sociologist, has argued in his essay, uh, Politics as a Vocation, which was published in 1919, uh, written actually just before his passing. Uh, but he's argued that what states do is legitimize the use of force to influence people and groups. So you've probably encountered the state in your personal life at a lot of different levels the police, the military, taxation, jury duty, voting, uh, mail delivery service, just to name a few. The state is also represented by the media on television, radio, uh, newspapers, and movies. And I just want to quote something directly from Ge uh, Ken Guest here, who describes how states operate. And he says, quote, through these routine and repetitive acts, the state comes to feel all-encompassing, end quote. But according to Antonio Gramsci, who was another really great uh, thinker of the early 20th century, the state can also create consent within a population without the use of direct threat or force through things like schools, right, uh, and the media. Uh, that, for example, enculturate people into having particular views of the world and also influence ideas about normal behavior. This is something that uh, we in the social science refer to as hegemony. People might believe, I think, that states are these permanent, fixed, and stable entities. But one thing I like about Sharma and Gupta's book, uh, which was uh, The Anthropology of the State, published in 2006, is that they demonstrate how fluid and perhaps how fragile states really are. Their work speaks to uh, how states create and try to maintain an illusionary curtain of sorts. Meanwhile, things like social movements, political campaigns, elections, 
court rulings and even executive orders, which happen all the time, operate as mechanisms that influence and transform states. So states really aren't permanent and they don't really have this kind of absolute power. That's what anthropology shows us. In the final segment of our conversation today, I thought we would uh, dial in on social movements and how they can have this transformative effect on culture and government. So anthropologists are really super interested in studying social movements, uh, specifically things like how they're activated, how they organize, and also how they uh, persist and sustain themselves. In recent years, I think there's been particular emphasis on how local communities have reacted to larger global issues. So for example, uh, injustice and inequality that's been brought about by uneven development, something we've talked about in earlier episodes. Now, some of you may have heard or maybe even remember the Occupy movement. Occupy is a social movement organized against economic inequality and uh, corporate greed. Income inequalities and wealth inequalities, as we've read already, have risen dramatically over the last 50 years, something that anthropologists attribute to the uneven development that globalization has brought about. Now, Occupy actually began as a single tweet in September 2011 that galvanized quickly into a demonstration on Wall Street. People camped for weeks in a nearby Zuccotti Park, and the encampment was sustained by crowdsourced donations that went to providing things like food and supplies for its demonstrators. Anthropologist Jeffrey Juris took to the streets and conducted research on the Occupy movement, which was later published in his article uh, titled Reflections on Hashtag Occupy Everywhere, which came out in 2012. Now, according to Juris, Occupy achieved success by creating a global conversation about wealth and income inequality. The movement's success, though, rested in its framing process. Uh, and by framing process, we're referring to how shared meanings and definitions serve to motivate and justify collective actions uh, by a social movement. So the Occupy movement was something that started local, right, in New York City, but quickly diffused across the globe into a galvanized movement. And this was facilitated in large part, yes, by social media, but also a key part of the framing process, according to uh, Juris, was their witted political slogan, which was, we are the 99%. We are the 99% is a message about the enormous income gap between everyday folk and the 1% of wealthy elites who, in the eyes of the Occupy movement, are really sort of ho uh, hoarding a disproportionate amount of capital. The slogan was popularized uh, by anthropologist David Graeber uh, in a Rolling Stone article, actually, but its minting and diffusing was really a collective effort. Other Occupy demonstrations erupted around the country, in cities, on college campuses, and then ultimately around the world in solidarity with Occupy Wall Street. What the movement was seeking was financial reform, a more equitable redistribution of wealth and capital, 
and really relief for students burdened by college debt. If you've paid attention to uh, the last uh, two, perhaps presidential uh, election cycles, these are issues that thanks to Occupy Wall Street have really been elevated to a national conversation. So this anthropological framework that we're talking about helps us see how the Occupy movement really was a critique about the fundamental unfairness that's embedded within the global economy. We're out of time for this week's episode, folks, but I do hope maybe that you have some new perspectives to think about your own expressions as a political entity and maybe see the global world in which we live in a little bit differently because everything about it is so sharply marked by power and politics. So thanks for listening to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry, and I'll see you for the next episode. Take good care.